from the Salvation Army National Headquarters, this is the Fight for Good podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fight for Good podcast. I'm your host, Major Jamie Satterley, and here with me is our editorial director, Jeff McDonald. Good to be with you this morning. Hello. Good. It's good to have you, Jeff. And of course, as always, we have Elizabeth Hanley, our media manager and producer. How's it going today, Elizabeth? I am totally stoked to be here. Same. This is a great, a great episode. For today, we're going to be sharing an interview that we had with Major Molly Schatzberger, who served uh, for quite an extended period in the uh, the kind of aftermath of, of 9-11. Uh, she served in various forms and functions there, everything from uh, emotional, spiritual care to uh, just kind of being there, a presence, getting people water, all the kind, kinds of things that, that you need and are supporting people in the aftermath uh, of a disaster. Jeff, can you tell me a little bit about how Major Molly came on your radar uh, and then how we decided kind of to focus on her story this year? Yeah, her, her name has come up so much in any discussion about emergency disaster relief on the part of the Army. And her, you know, her service at 9-11 is really legendary. So we know that she had done an initial report uh, after, in the aftermath of 9-11. We wanted to do a follow-up with her, especially, you know, her article in the September War Cry deals with her really talking about her experiences there, as you've heard in the interview, and, um, you know, how dramatic and, and profound her service was and that of other Salvation Army personnel. But we wanted in this podcast to get her, uh, her feedback on what lessons she were learned from that experience on part of the army. And she certainly answered that as well. Yeah. It's very interesting, you know, to hear all those things. It's incredible to me that it's now been 20 years. I can remember back, uh, you know, just like it was yesterday to those days, but being far away in Texas, I didn't really know anybody from the army who had kind of responded in this way, I was aware of what the army was doing, but hadn't really heard any firsthand stories of what that looked like. So it was really good to be able to touch base with her and hear her experiences. Uh, and even now, 20 years later, how that's still affecting uh, her life and her ministry. So it's a great interview. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about all that's happening in our world today. The messages are still relevant, and the growth of the Army's um, ability to respond to disasters is so very impressive. So in that vein, uh, and, you know, it's, it's funny to hear her talk. She's, she's humble. She's a very down-to-earth, very practical, you know, in her approach. And yet she has such a heart for ministry, and that came through in the interview. Yeah. Yes, I was very encouraged by her heart. Uh, for for other people, just simply with her ministry of presence, just being there and listening uh, to to what they're feeling and what they're going through, and those are all still things that she does today, even as a retired officer, continuing to serve uh, where she can. Yeah, and it does personify in many ways what the army's about. You know, her service, that example of her service. She was there for nine months. I mean, she was right in the thick of it and the tragedy and the heartache and oh my, just having the faith to live through that I think is exemplary. We encourage you to stay tuned uh, and, and check out this interview with Major Molly. Do you wanna just give our readers like a little bit of background on yourself? 
a little bit about you and your family and maybe a little bit about your service through the army since as you said you've had so so many different kinds of appointments and things well my husband and i served in corps for a number of years then we were on headquarters and um it was in greater new york i don't know if you remember the twa flight 800 crash that went down on long island and um Colonel Ray Wood, who was the divisional commander then, asked me to go to the morgue to see if the Salvation Army might be of service. And it was actually there that I realized how unprepared myself and the Army were for these, you know, these mega, mega disasters. And so it was at that point I personally decided to get certifications and training and and so forth so that I would be better prepared and then was able to teach others. And from there, we went to the supplies and purchasing department. And um, my husband was, we call him the trade secretary. And uh, when 9-11 happened, Greater New York, because of my past experience, asked me to come and join their team. And so that's how I became part of the 9-11. We have a wonderful family. We have a daughter, four great-grandchildren, three other grandchildren. <laughs> so it makes, me, it makes me feel old. Most of them are in Kentucky. Granddaughter is in um, Texas. Don't get to see them very often. But uh, they support me in all that I do. So I know you've you've had education in in spiritual counseling. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Could you just elaborate on that? What what did that involve? Well, and and actually through critical incident stress management, they have they have courses there, and uh, the army since has developed. I'm not sure what they call it today, but it was for emotional and spiritual care that anybody serving on those teams would have to take this training to better educate them. I did have the privilege when we were stationed at uh, Territorial Headquarters of Teaching at the uh, training college, Grief Recovery. I am uh, one of the certifications I have is a grief recovery uh, specialist. That's fascinating. You know, we, we're talking about it from the angle of emergency disaster services, but it's so relevant for today and all that we're going through with, uh, you know, trauma and the mental health epidemic and all of those kind of things. Um, you know, they translate well, those skills. They do. And, you know, PS, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome is a real problem. When we first retired, um, I was a volunteer chaplain at our local hospital. They could only afford to hire one. So I became um, a volunteer, and I did that so that I would be able to keep my skills sharp just in case, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, just, it just brings me to one of the questions I was, we were going to ask later, but I guess it's uh, apropos now in that it just seems the army has advanced so much in emergency services over the decades have you seen that oh definitely yeah um we still have some lessons to learn but we have come a long long way and i think the training program is so important it doesn't matter uh, like 
my expertise was emotional and spiritual care, but we have, you know, food services, we have incident command, and just um, so many positions. And the Army has just really stepped up to the plate in saying, okay, if you want to be part of this, then you have to take this training. Yeah, and also resources have developed. I, I know that the you know, incident commands in each territory, they're prepared, their resources are at the ready. And uh, there's been a significant investment in that as well. Right. When 9-11 hit, we were not that prepared uh, <laughs> for the first two weeks in greater New York. And I alluded to that in the uh, War Cry article a little bit. We kind of flew by the seat of our pants. But we worked together, and God was with us, And but we have come a long, long way as far as if this happens again, he, this team is in place and absolutely ready to go. Hmm. Yeah, on that subject, I know that the Army is classified as the government, as a governmental disaster services um, agency, you know, officially, uh, although the Army doesn't often get recognition in that way. But it is staggering, not just in the U.S., but also worldwide, what the Army does in relief. But I think the main reason is because the funds we get during a disaster go directly to that disaster. We don't spend a lot on PR like uh, many of the agencies do. We think that what we do in our service, the people that we serve are our best advertisement. Yeah, it, it's true. We don't we don't spend a lot of, even overall, we don't spend a lot of advertising money. We try to push as much of that back into the community as we can. And like you say, for disasters, um, it does, it all goes right back uh, to where it's given. Uh, and it's, it's so interesting to me to the, uh, the breadth of the types of disasters, I guess, that the Army responds to. We've done everything from, small local ones like house fires to like these ones that affect our entire country, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it. There's a good chance the Salvation Army disaster response is there in some capacity. Uh, I know when I was a Corps officer here in Virginia before, there was a, a shooting at the college in the Valley, uh, and, and we sent an emotional and spiritual care response team out there uh, to be with the families. So even even things like that that you don't really think of as emergency disaster services, the Army has some sort of response there uh, to try to meet the needs of the, of the people who are being affected by that tragedy. And usually, usually the Army is one of the first ones there, if not the first. Yeah, you're right. It's it's one of the great things about having Army locations. You know, we say we represent pretty much every zip code in America. And because of that, our, our local team is able to get right there. Uh, it, it may take, you know, a day or so to get the big response teams there, but they're, the local people are jumping right in, serving, doing everything they can from the moment, the moment that they can. Yes. It's incredible. Yeah. So in your, in your article, you know, you share some very personal accounts of your encounters during 9-11 at Ground Zero. Could you just uh, talk about some of the more vivid memories you have of that service? Well, I, I tried in the, the article to be um, to cover all three sites because we were at Ground Zero, 
we were at the morgue and then we were at the Fresh Kills land site. And um, an interesting story from the Fresh Kills land site was where the debris went and sorted through for the very last time. And we don't hear a lot of stories coming out of there. I shared some of the Ground Zero stories in the War Cry article, but I remember specifically one day this little bit of a woman came into the feeding tent and sat down. And our procedure was, you know, we just left them alone for a while. And then we'd go over and say, do you mind if I have, you know, a soda with you? Or, and in the course of the conversation, would you like to talk? So in the course of this, she started unloading about all that she was seeing. And I said to her, what do you do? Well, she drove one of those huge trucks that they had that literally lifted up the gravel and put it on the tray for people to sort through. And uh, so she shared what she was feeling. She shared her emotions and the things that she was seeing. And at the end of the conversation, she said to me, now, can anybody talk to you? I said, well, that's what we're here for. And she pointed her finger and she said, I have a friend that needs to talk to you. So I said, okay, I'm here for two weeks. The next day, this little lady comes in pulling this muscular man behind her. He was also uh, one of the equipment drivers. And she says to him, this is the lady I told you about. Now sit down and talk to her. So reluctantly, he sat down. But in the course of just chatting back and forth, he too was able to unload. And that happened over and over again. You had to get them away from the situation in order for them to just kind of take a breath and be able to talk about and uh, then to go back to what they were doing. Major Molly, from the, the time that you started serving until the time that you were done, about how long was it? I was there all nine months. And um, one of the greatest things that happened for the Army and for me personally was on the very last day when they asked the Salvation Army to be part of the Honor Guard as they brought the last beam um, out of the rubble. And, and today, it's still such a special memory. You never know when the tears are going to come. Well, listen, it's understandable. You lived through, I mean, there's not a part of America that wasn't changed by what happened on 9-11. And you were, you had a front row seat to, to all of that, that happened. It, it would be surprising if there weren't tears, I think. Uh, I, th I mean, I, you know, they talk about uh, when trauma happens to you or even secondary trauma, that it imprints itself in your in your mind in ways that, you know, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of scientific studies and things about it. Um, but that's how I feel about 9-11. I was in Texas at the time. I can play back the memories of the newsreels and all those things in my mind. And it's like watching a movie uh, in my head. Um, and so I think for for someone like you who who was there on the ground um, helping people, it, it's only that much stronger, I would imagine, even now 20 years later. Yeah. Well, and you talk about the movie, and that's exactly what it's like. And then 
the, the movie goes on and then all of a sudden you hit that freeze frame and it stops for a while and then then it goes on one of the greatest lessons i learned from all of the years i've been doing this is you never know when you're going to hit that freeze zone and something's going to come back um a couple of years ago, I was down in Kentucky visiting the family, and on the way back, I was with my cousin and her husband, and they had the RV, and I had never been to Shanksville, so they decided they were going to surprise me and stop by on the way home, and uh, we got there, and I walked out on the platform, and as I was walking out, it, it just... It just happened. The tears just started. And as I overlooked the field where all of those people had died, I mean, my heart just broke. And I said to my cousin, um, I have to get out of here. And I found a little corner and I literally sobbed. And I was, I was surprised, but then later I wasn't surprised that I had had such an emotional reaction. It was just seeing it and the emptiness and, and remembering. And I'm sure that happens for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no, um, empathy in those situations is certainly emphasized when you're right there with people experiencing it. And I guess that's a big part of the army's ministry. Um, the, the ministry of just being available um, I do have a question um, for you. Looking back now, I'm just wondering what enduring lessons you might you might take from your experiences in providing such service, um, in in what it what it means for our country, what it means for the army, um, especially in this day and age when you know there's a lot of polarization. There's a lot of uh, tribalism and people being antagonistic, etc. And yet, here's this service—you know, this sacrificial service that you've offered through the years. What lessons do you derive from your experience that might be uh, helpful for people to know? Well, I think one of the things, speaking from an emotional and spiritual care perspective, uh, one of the things we learned was that we have to be better prepared to deal with other cultures and other religions. You know, it's so easy to kneel down with somebody and to pray with them. But if they don't pray the same way we do, it, it's difficult for them sometimes. So what the Army has begun to do is to have materials available for the other cultures, the other religions. I remember the one day we got, uh, I was at the morgue that day, and we got a big, big box of uh, rosary beads. And we were doing prayer services at the time. So when we put them out on the table in the tent, it was amazing. I mean, the people just flocked around it because we were meeting their need at that time. Um, we've learned that the Jewish people really like to have their prayer book there. So that's another lesson uh, we learned. Uh, there are short prayers that other religions say. So that was a big wake-up call, uh, I think, for our team that we just have to remember 
that there are other people there besides those that we work with every, every day. Another lesson I learned was actually from the people themselves. The determination that when something goes wrong, they will find a way to do something regardless of the obstacles. I think it was Joseph Kennedy that said, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And we saw that in New York over and over again. We had so many volunteers that at a point we had to just say to them, we have right now, let me have your name and so forth. So what some of the people did, and I don't know if you remember seeing um, on the news, there were crowds of them. And rather it was late at night, early morning, as we drove up out of Ground Zero, there was a multitude of people with signs. Thank you for your service. And they'd clap. And they, it was funny because we were used to handing out the cold water and they would give us bottles of cold water, you know, or a candy bar or something. But they were so resourceful. And I just remember the lesson of the American spirit, how everybody came together and literally were one. There wasn't, well, you know, I'm from this place or I'm from that place or I believe this and I believe that. Everybody just came together to try to help those who uh, in the beginning were just searching so hard to find somebody you know, still alive. And it just, it still amazes me today. And uh, I have to admit, I am worried about another attack. You know, with the situation today, you just don't know what's going to happen. But I have no doubt in my mind that um, people will come together. They will be resilient. And uh, wherever they are. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, it's, it's those are great answers. Yes, indeed. And I was just curious, you know, uh, I appreciate your thoughts on that, especially, uh, you know, and this, it, yeah, it often takes tragedy to bring people together, but if we can get there earlier, it's always good. And the army is good for that. One of the other things I learned is that God always provides in the early days. And I'm talking the first couple of days when the buildings had collapsed and the area, the drug stores and, and the other stores, they, people just left them because there was so much debris. And we actually ran out of bottled water before it started coming in by the pallets. And uh, our team had met, and because I was the team leader, it was mostly guys, so I laugh about this today. Uh, we always prayed you know, and, and it brought our needs before the Lord. And they said, okay, we need water. You're the team leader. You go find the water. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. But I walked around uh, before the perimeter was set up. I walked around and just to see if anybody had any water. And they didn't. I mean, we were all in the same boat. So I went out to where one National Guardsman was uh, kind of standing guard because at that point then the huge trucks were coming in from all over 
the United States and um, didn't know where they were going. They just wanted to come in. So I heard the conversation and the guardsman said to him, well, I can't let you down where the, where they're working. But um, he said, could you wait here a minute? And he came over and I said, is there a problem? And he said, yeah, this guy has a whole truckload of something. And he said, um, I don't know what to do with them. And I said to him, I don't know what it is either, but I am sure we're going to need it eventually. So I crawled into the truck with the guy and I guided him back to where our site was. And as we stopped, I looked at him and I said, and um, by the way, <laughs> what's in the truck? He said, ma'am, this truck is loaded from top to bottom, front to back with pallets of water. I looked at him. I wanted to hug him, but I restrained myself. And I said, you're an answer to prayer. And his response was, ma'am, I've been called a lot of things, but never an answer to prayer. And so an example of how God just provided what we needed when we needed it. Of course, I had fun saying to the guys, you can unload the truck. I found the water. You <laughs> say, I did my part. <laughs> got that right. <laughs> Me and God, we got this covered. I was intrigued by some of the, uh, I think it was your article, maybe by uh, Colonel Webster, how people were very receptive to prayer during this whole recovery period. They were. They were. It... Um, and I don't know if we have time for this, so stop me. But it was during Holy Week. And um, while others were digging for remains, there was another team digging underground for all the money that had been buried underneath. We called it the search for the gold. And uh, on one particular day, I remember Steve, he was the leader of the group. And he came out to the table and he was so excited. And he said, you're not going to believe what we just found. And I thought, oh, they struck gold. And he said, as he was walking in, he literally fell to his knees. And the two guys that were with him thought he stumbled and went to pick him up and lift him up. And he pointed straight ahead. And he said, look. Three crosses, not one, but three crosses had fallen perfectly in the rubble. And he said to them, and this is during Holy Week, he said to them, there's Calvary. And one of the guys that were with him said, you know, I can't remember the last time I was in church, but I can tell you what, I'm going this Sunday and every Sunday after. So they were so, so receptive. And just so so many amazing stories. Yeah, I'm sure that you could relate so many and um, uh, the reality of the moment. Uh, how were you after nine months of going through that? How did you recover from that nine months of service? It's interesting because that's one of the things that the Army has improved on. We did not do a great job in the aftercare of those who had been there for so, so long. And actually what happened to me was I was so busy debriefing others and being involved 
that I never had that for myself. And one morning, it was months later, I couldn't get out of bed. I just was so exhausted. And, and I knew, I knew what was happening. And I said to my husband, I just, I can't get up today. I just, and so for a couple of days, I stayed home in bed. And then I said, okay, you know what you have to do. So I called our pastoral care department and they got me in touch with a wonderful, wonderful counselor who actually mm -hmm. walked me through it. And, um, do I still have, I don't have flashbacks, but I have memories, you know, every now and then something will click. And, um, and so I cry, you know, but I move on now, but we have to remember, we have to take care of those who take care of others. I just, I do want to ask, um, I know it takes careful preparation of personnel and equipment to respond in an instant to crises and disasters. It takes a special type of person to rush in to bring aid, comfort, direction, you know, spiritual and uh, emotional support. Uh, those responding are equipped and capable of standing fast for the long haul. What are the characteristics that distinguish the Army's emergency service workers? You know, what characteristics are, are needed? I think for me, the greatest characteristic is the Ministry of Presence. So often you just want to help people say what they're thinking. And many times they, at the point, they don't know what they're thinking. And I think our ministry of presence, just being there, holding a hand, putting a hand on a shoulder, uh, hugging someone, I think that's the greatest asset. And I think that's what the Army brings that other agencies don't. The, the real compassion, because we know the one who gives us uh, that compassion, who gives us that love. And I'm sorry, there's a cell phone ringing. <laughs> What's happening? But um, I think our ministry of presence is really, and I think it has to be a person who finds a way in the midst of the disaster to find a, uh, a safe spot for them. For instance, if I was driving in early in the morning or late at night, I would always have Christian music on the radio station. And uh, that, for me, helped me when I had to face the catastrophe of the day. And I think, again, it's because of our relationship with Jesus Christ that we're able to hold on to those things, to give us what we need to meet the needs at the point of need. I think it has to be a person who, while they may be well-educated, they have to put the education behind them and use more common sense. I remember saying to some of the psychiatrists on our team, throw the book away. We're not here to solve lifelong problems. We're here to get them through the moment. And so they have to be willing um, to kind of change course. Well, you know, we, you know, encourage people to pick up the September issue of the War Cry and read your article or find it online. Um, 
for because in, in it you do you know give some vivid uh, remembrances recollections of your service there and you know i know you don't like to think of yourself as legendary but everybody i talk to about your service has has act, nothing but accolades to a praise to give you for what you've accomplished what you've done on the field so uh you know you i'm, I'm sure you know that but well, I just had the too. privilege of, of, as I say, being Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet. And that's what I've been called to do. So I'm glad to hear that uh, that I've done that. Hmm. Okay. I have to ask that real quick. How did you first calling, that calling first come to you? When I was a little girl... I wanted to join the circus and swing on the tramp, trampoline, uh, the trapeze. I really did. That was my goal in life. But then as I got older, I realized how dangerous that was. So I really wanted to become a nurse. And um, I was dating my husband through high school. And um, he joined the Marines and, and we got married after he, his uh, service in the Marines. But while we were dating, he kept saying to me, you just need to know if this is going to be serious, I feel called to be a Salvation Army officer. Well, I was brought up in another uh, congregation and didn't know much about the Army except what he told me. And then I became the babysitter for the Salvation Army officers in our hometown. So long story short, I knew I loved this guy. And I said, you know, if, if God really wants him in my life, then he must be calling me to the same service that he just feels so impassioned about. And so it actually came, I think, through my husband's calling that um, the Lord said, and I believe it or not, I was very shy. And he said, I want you in full-time service. And I thought, well, nursing was full-time service, but being a Salvation Army officer would be full-time service too. And I think from the nursing, the compassion, the caring, I think the Lord has used that for my emergency disaster services. Thank you for listening with us today to the Fight for Good with Major Molly Schatzberger. We would encourage you to check out the September issue uh, of the War Cry magazine, uh, where you can read more of uh, Molly's thoughts and experiences there. That's going to end this episode of the Fight for Good podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow the War Cry and Peer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, this has been the Fight for Good podcast. See you later. Subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts.